Welcome to the Health Law Expressions podcast. My colleague Josh Hodges and I are manning the mic for the first time. And as we prepared for doing the, the podcast this week, I was thinking of one of my favorite podcasts out there that's called New England Legends. They always start their show by saying if you give them eight or ten minutes, they're going to give you, the listener, something weird to talk about. Uh, so we're taking the same approach here at Horty Springer. If you give us eight to ten minutes, we'll give you something interesting to talk about. And today we're going to be discussing how so many of our clients that we work with are reporting being overwhelmed in their medical staff services department and in particular in their medical staff offices. They're often you know, really feeling crushed in terms of the amount of information that they need to process for an initial applicant, especially for locum providers. And when you balance that with I think chronically being understaffed in, in a lot of the organizations that we work with, it's not uncommon for us to be asked questions and even for tips on, you know, how do we scale down the credentialing process to lessen the avalanche of paperwork that needs to be done to bring someone on board? Now, as a firm, our usual advice is to engage in a thorough credentialing process in due diligence whenever possible, uh, and as a part of that, doing rigorous primary source verification because, Josh, as you and I know, we, we often are left helping our clients clean up train wrecks when somebody is brought on board who maybe shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have passed go in terms of any sort of review of their background and qualifications. But we do recognize, again, that there's a lot of burden to this process and that, I guess, from a regulatory perspective, there is some wiggle room in terms of how far do we need to go with some of the verification steps that are typical in the credentialing process. And, and we recognize that the, it may be possible to reduce some of those burdens. So, when we're asked, you know, are there any hard and fast rules about the essentials of credentialing? Again, we understand that this isn't always black and white and, and that in a lot of cases we can use a reasonableness standard to determine, all right, how much do we really need here to, to evaluate someone appropriately? For example, right, one of the questions we often get is, hey, we're in the medical staff office. Uh, we are currently looking at all of an applicant's hospital affiliations going back to their training and residency days, which maybe makes sense from the perspective of somebody who's, you know, been practicing two, three, four, five years. But, it, you know, where I think some of the frustration is you're telling me this person is, you know, has a 30 year history with a perfect track record that we really need to go back and, and do that affiliation look at every single stop they've had along the way. I mean, doing that, again, is a burden. So, as we think about that particular issue in terms of hospital affiliation, Josh, is, is it possible in any way to limit that look-back period? It is possible to limit that. Neither the Joint Commission nor CMS really set specific standards that tell you exactly how far back you have to go when you're verifying prior hospital affiliations. But they do require that hospitals evaluate adverse privileging actions. So, you know, maybe the simplest way to do this would just be to ask the applicant on the application to disclose any time that they've had an adverse privileging action taken against them in the past. But one problem with that is that if the applicant maybe hides the truth or omits something from the application, you're not going to find out. So most of our clients will consider verifying prior hospital affiliations to be an important best practice. Having said that, we often do see a cutoff. I mean, if you go back too far, there may not be records, for one thing. People may forget. And so we often see a look-back period that ends anywhere from 5 to 10 years. And so you could easily, um, if you wanted to and you, you felt like that was appropriate, you could even limit your review to those within the past 5 years. That would be reasonable, although on the lower end. 
Yeah, no, and I, I think that is, like you said, it, it's it's back to what would a reasonable approach be? And, and I guess ultimately, as lawyers on this end, our mind always goes to the worst case scenario of a negligent credentialing type situation and, and mm-hmm. having a third party judge or jury look back and say, okay, were they reasonable or not? And as Josh said, I think there seems to be a good comfort level of five to 10 years, right? That's really going to tell us what we need to know about somebody's history before we bring them on board. Sometimes for the locums folks, we even see, I I mean, I've run into this a couple of times where they limit it by uh, even a shorter window. Maybe we're only going to look at the last year because this is potentially somebody who's worked at 500 places during that time, Uh, or maybe even limit it by numbers, right? We're going to look back at the last 10 or 20 affiliations, irrespective of any sort of time limit. But right, we have some flexibility here under both the Joint Commission and CMS rules. Uh, And it's, again, back to what's our comfort level. And some of that, frankly, is going to be based on experience. I mean, I've had a bylaws project that I'm working on recently where a member of that task force floated the idea of using a lesser window and instantly hands went up around the table saying, no, no, you know, remember this particular incident where they found just recently an applicant where, you know, there was things that they wouldn't have found if they would have had a a shorter perspective on that. Um, So again, you're, as we talk to the folks out there, right, your own sort of experience is going to inform you on how you, the direction you take with some of these questions. And just to build on that, if you do encounter a red flag of any kind, or maybe you just start to worry that a particular applicant has a concern, uh, you can always go back further than that. If, you, know, you don't have to just limit yourself. So, so this way, if something does arise, you can always go back further. Great point, Josh. We always have the ability to dig, dig, dig and ask more questions, that's for sure. A- another area where we, we see uh, questions come up about is there a different way to do this is, is the area of claims histories. You know, a common thing we hear, Josh, is, boy, this feels really inefficient that we're you know, running national practitioner data bank reports that show any sort of, you know, payments that have been made for a malpractice issue. And then we're also running this full claims history for each applicant. And so again, not uncommon for somebody to say, can't we just do the data bank, right? We, we have to do the data bank stuff. Isn't that enough? What do you think about that one? So again, you have some wiggle room here. Um, both the Joint Commission and CMS require that hospitals consider evidence of any kind of unusual pattern or excessive number of malpractice suits. The issue with the databank reports is that they may not capture everything. There are a few loopholes where things may not be reported. Because those databank reports aren't going to capture everything, you really need to have some kind of claims history taken into consideration. We have seen clients limit the look back on this to five to seven years. So that's, uh, again, we're seeing this wiggle room here, this recognition that going back too far may not offer much benefit. So it would be reasonable to only look at claims from the past five years, as we saw before. Yeah, and that, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the things that uh, has been enlightening to me as you, you know, neither Josh nor I or anyone else at Horty Springer are malpractice attorneys, but we are often exposed to questions about, you know, new applicant, how many lawsuits are too many, how many should be a red flag. And and one of the things that's interesting about the data in that world is just the connection between being sued and bedside manner slash professionalism. So back to Josh's point, I mean, you could potentially have an applicant who is sued a lot. They're all sort of deemed frivolous or dismissed. None of that would show up in their databank 
queries, right? Because there's no settlement, there's no money being exchanged. But that's certainly information I think you'd want to know about if this person is being sued a lot, because it may tell you more about them on the professionalism side than even the clinical side, right? It's just kind of a, you know, the data shows that people who are upset with their physicians for any number of reasons may decide to sue them. Uh, and so I think there is more to be gleaned from doing that that kind of look back on the claims history and not just settling for the data bank information. But as Josh suggested, right, not uncommon to see that uh, limited in some way. We're not going to necessarily look back at all the claims history for somebody who's been practicing 30 years. Uh, we may have a five or seven year window where, where that is the focus. So with that, uh, again, we're giving you eight to 10 minutes here. And by our watch, we're right on time with that. So we hope this helps tie up some loose ends for you out there as it relates to these specific issues. Uh, And we hope that you keep an eye out for the next issue of the Health Law Express and the next episode of Health Law Expressions podcast. So thank you for joining us. (music) 